0: I will be reading that in just a moment. We begin a new series this morning, and we continue an old series this evening that we had left off for a time. This morning we begin a series on the subject of peacemaking, and we will be going to varied passages of Scripture to pull together principles. To guide the Christian in peacemaking. One of the passages is very relevant is Matthew 5, particularly beginning at verse 23. I'll begin at verse 21 and read the whole section which continue, or continues through verse 26. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. This is God's Word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and bear, remember that your brother has something against you. until you've paid the last penny. Amen. Towards the end of the book of Philippians, a book that we just finished studying together, the Apostle Paul rather abruptly makes an entreaty, a plea, to two members of the church in Philippi. And when he does it, it's unsettling to us to read it. And you can bet... It would have been unsettling for that congregation to which it was originally addressed when it was read in their hearing. On the whole, the book, of course, as we saw recently, is written to a church that's largely, it would seem, free from any major problem. It really is a very different book than, say, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the book of Galatians. Those are letters written to churches that are embroiled in various practical and theological problems. Not so with the book of Philippians. You really get the sense that Paul's writing to a a very beloved and rather healthy congregation. But then there is this word of rebuke, gently put, but rebuke nonetheless, it comes near the end. I entreat iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He singled out these two ladies. In his letter to the whole church, they surely would have been felt singled out as the letter was read. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, when we were studying Philippians, we didn't spend much time looking at that. We can uh, see rather obviously that Paul was aware of of the disagreement between apparently two prominent women in the church. not only was he aware of the disagreement, he was personally acquainted with the two ladies. He knew them. They had worked with him, presumably when he was there in Philippi. And so he calls on a third party, the one he calls his true companion, a pastor perhaps, to act as a reconciler. Apparently, in an otherwise very healthy church, Paul recognized that there were conflicts that existed between brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to let that little passage in a former series, be a launchpad to this new series. I think I gave you a little bit of a hint that I might do that. What would it take for Eodia and Syntyche to obey the apostle? What would they need to do to listen to his entreaty? What biblical principles would they need to follow to resolve the conflict? that Paul rebukes them for? I want to ask and try to answer that question in the next few weeks. And I, I want to say that uh, I am thankful this is not a, a series that's occasioned by some concern of my part that we are unusually uh, fraught with conflict as a church. I rather think that we are in a somewhat similar position, a rather healthy congregation like the one in Philippi to whom Paul writes. However, I have again and again, in my interaction pastorally over the years, I've been made aware of how even some of the ABCs of how Christians deal with conflict with another brother or sister are either not understood or very often simply not followed even by mature Christians, the most mature among us. From time to time, I have questions about this subject, and I answer them as best I can. And here, towards the end of this year, I want to start, seek to answer those questions in a more systematic way. We're going to be studying a notion of peacemaking. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we say I'm taking up the very more narrow issue of peacemaking. I'm not going to be talking about all the biblical exhortations that are intended to preserve peace, love and kindness and compassion and all that, that are intended to to avoid conflict and make sure that it doesn't happen. That, of course, has a certain primacy. But here, I'm taking as my springboard, Iodia and Syntyche. It's already happened. Something happened. And they're not right with each other, how are we to respond to that? And so, in the next few weeks, we'll be taking up topics like this. The biblical teaching on covering sin in a brother. The biblical teaching about confronting in love. The teaching on the nature of true forgiveness. And matters such as mediators and even church discipline, all matters in the Scripture that are oriented towards resolving conflicts within the body. Today, we're going to take up the most basic. If we could heed the words of the Scripture this morning, Matthew chapter 5, the rest of the series would not be necessary, I dare say. I'm going to take up this morning a matter of confessing sin to a brother. This happened most consistently among us. There'd be no need for any of the rest. This is in some sense then the most basic. I want to talk about this morning in a very nuts and bolts way. What confession is, when confession is necessary, and what confession accomplishes. And we'll proceed quickly since I've given such a lengthy introduction. What is confession? What is this first principle of peacemaking that I've singled out this morning? Well, in this context, I'm talking about confessing of sin to other people, not confessing sin to God. We have to recognize that's our first responsibility any time we sin. Every sin must be confessed to God as soon as we are aware of it. It must be confessed specifically and forgiveness sought. But here I'm talking about confession that takes place between one brother and another. And there are a couple of different ways that that confession can manifest itself. One is not my primary concern. I'll mention it, but then we'll talk about the other. The confession of sin that we do one to another can take the form or the purpose of spiritual health and accountability. In other words, we can confess sin to another person, not because we wronged them, but because we are humbly seeking spiritual help with the sin that we're confessing. For example, you might have a close friend and you recognize that you're struggling with a sin and not succeeding in it and you confess to that close friend. Here's what I'm struggling with. You pray for me and you hold me accountable. Now, that's a whole area of biblical teaching that's very important. I don't plan to take that up this morning. Another time, by the way, that that kind of confession is appropriate, is when elders come and sit down with you and say, how are you doing spiritually? And answering that question, you should have it as your concern, in part, to confess your failings so that you can have help and accountability. Well, we'll leave that kind of confession, the kind of confession that I'm interested in and that Matthew 5 is talking about is the confession of sin for purposes of reconciliation. That is what is taking place in verse 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled. Now, here's the man who's envisioned as being there in worship and he realizes, he remembers or he just can't avoid thinking about the fact that he has a brother. It could be a sister as well. That's something against him. He's wronged them. Perhaps there were words spoken in a heated conversation. Perhaps it was just an attitude cop over the last couple of days. Perhaps it was some specific act of injustice or disregard. We, we could envision any number of different wrongs. How many ways are there to wrong a brother? countless ways. Any one of them will do as illustration. He remembers it while he's at worship. Jesus tells him he's to go and be reconciled. And the case that I'm making this morning is that that reconciliation begins with confession. Three things I want you to see about the steps of reconciliation as we try to understand what it is. First, it involves going to your brother. Now, in some cases, a literal going, may be possible. Otherwise, they may live in Tucson. And so you'll have to phone or write or what have you. But the point that Jesus is making is that the initiative is to be with you if you've wronged your brother and you're to go, that's the first step of confessing. Do you remember uh, recently in a prayer meeting, some of you, where I mentioned uh, Tony Kurdo's testimony, uh, a missionary from Uganda, now returned from Uganda, of the slander that he received within the church there. And how there was, in the case of one brother who'd taken part in a group effort to, to dishonor him, there was, in the case of one brother... Conviction of sin, and he did just this. He was dead in Kenya by that point. In Uganda, he is beginning to wrap up his work, and he, he gets a letter first. Seeking forgiveness. Confessing sin. And before long, he actually has the man standing on his step. The, the man apparently had decided, it's not enough for me just to write a letter. If at all possible, I'm going to get face-to-face face with him and confess my sin. It involves going Brothers and sisters, in most cases, we do not confess our sins because we don't take this very first step of confession. We don't go. We're not willing to go to Him with that particular errand. Why aren't we? He's have wronged a family member, a friend, a member of the church, a member of the Christian community broadly, even a member of the world. You know you're wrong. You know you've done badly. Your conscience says you need to do something about it. But what is it that prevents you? I'll tell you what it is. It's the paralysis that comes from pride. Pride. The, the, that distaste of humbling yourself before another human being and saying, I was at fault. And that's all you intend to say. I was wrong. And you know what that's like, don't you? you? You've known those moments, perhaps. Maybe even hours, maybe even days, when you've known what you should do and you just couldn't bring yourself to do it. You couldn't even take the first step of confession. Go! So many reasons for not going come to your mind. All of them come down to that paralyzing effect of Pride. Jesus says, you go. That's where confession begins. Second step of confession. Acknowledge fully and sincerely your sin. Psalm 32 is speaking about our being reconciled to God, and yet it serves us as a pattern for all reconciliation. The psalmist says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And there you see the pattern. The psalmist recognizes in order to be reconciled to God, I've got to open my heart and show him my sin and name it. Acknowledge it to be what it is. The man who recognized that he had, or that his brother had something against him. It's very obvious, implicit in the text, that when he went to be reconciled, he was going to come saying, I know that you rightly have something against me. here, too, if we can overcome the paralysis of pride in our going, here, too, our confession is oftentimes sabotaged by our own pride. Oftentimes, we can bring ourselves to go in the confessing of our sin, but we mess it up, and we mess it up badly. We end up doing more harm than good in what we say as purportedly we confess our sins. There's a number of ways we can do that. We can do that by not acknowledging our sins specifically enough. Children, I know I haven't been a very good mother today. Or I haven't been a very good father today. Hmm. That's conveniently general. How about, children, I was impatient with you when I came home. And I said such and such. And that was wrong. Or to someone... At work, I'm sorry I was such a jerk. It's okay, buddy. Well, that's, that's a nice way to short circuit a fuller process. But confessing to being a jerk is not biblical range. I'm sorry that I said such and such. I said it because I was angry at you and I wanted to hurt you. Sometimes we sabotage our own confession by making excuses for our sins, even as we confess them. I'm sorry that I said that, but I wasn't trying to hurt you. Why are you sorry, then, if you weren't trying to hurt me? Is there anything to apologize for if you said it without any intention at all of hurting me? Are you really being honest when you say that? I'm sorry I said that. In the moment, I set it out of a desire to hurt you. But that's not how I feel towards you now. And that's not how I usually feel. Please forgive me. It would be far better. I shouldn't have lost my temper with you, but you made me angry. Is this a confession time? Or is this an accusation time? Are you thinking about your sin? Or are you thinking about my sin? Can we be clear about this? Understand how even when we go to confess... The words we say can actually undermine what we are intending or professing to intend. We can sabotage our own confession, our owning up to our sin by not even admitting concretely that we even sinned. This is my favorite, if I can speak a bit sarcastically. I'm sorry if I offended you. What does that mean? What kind of conditional... Sorrow is that. that. That communicates. I'm not sure that I offended you. I'm not sure I did anything wrong. But it's a rather inconvenient. I'd like us to get past it. That's not true confession. Perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I could have tried harder, etc. The ways we do this could go on and on. Brothers and sisters, when you go to a brother, congratulations. By the way, you you're on the way. You're going. Resolve, secondly, in true confession to fully and sincerely acknowledge your sin. Eradicate from your language all words about another person's sins, all conditional words like if or but. Don't try to preserve your dignity. Don't try to even the score. Don't try to negotiate and and mix confession with reproof. You go and confess And there'll be time for the rest later. Confession involves going. It involves admitting. It involves, thirdly, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. We we can't talk about all of what that means. We'll, We'll save the nature of forgiveness for a later sermon. But that's clearly Jesus' concern. If you're offering your gift, you remember your brother has something against you, go. And why are you going? To be reconciled. To remove the thing between you and that brother that has separated and has made him have something against you. You see, there's a clear object in view. And that doesn't sound very profound when I say it. However, often we can go to confess our sin merely out of a sense of obligation. I don't give a whip whether this guy has something against me. But Jesus told me I have to confess my sin, and I realized I, I had sin. And so, I have to clear my conscience and confess my sin. Now, is it surprising to any of us? That kind of motive for going and for confessing doesn't often bring about reconciliation. But why does this man go to his brother he goes for the same purpose that you and I go to the Lord when we're confessing our sins to him. Are we happy if God simply hears us say, I'm sorry? I trust we're not. I trust we realize with the Lord that our big problem is that our sin has put distance between us. So we want that to be removed. We want him to be reconciled. He's displeased pleased with us. We want him not to be displeased with us. And so we don't go confessing our sins just to get a burden off our conscience. Conscience helps. We go to confess our sins ultimately to be reconciled. Brothers and sisters, that is why confession of sin to a brother has to be mingled with love for him. And a desire to be united with him again in the Christian bond of love has to be motivated have a love for Him, a desire for being reconciled. Here's a good question for you to ask yourself. If you've gotten through the first two steps, you're going, and you've got the right words to say, ask yourself, why am I going? So I can get my conscience to be quiet about this? Am I going truly because I want to be one with that brother again? I'm going because of our relationship. Jesus died for both of us. And we're going to be together forever in heaven and I want to be one with him. I write out for you, brothers and sisters, what confession is. Let me ask secondly, when is confession necessary? Perhaps struck with me the sense of how much is involved in this. When do we do this? What is it necessary or called for? Well we need to say that the expression in Matthew 5 is very important. It's quite striking. It says, when your brother has something against you. That's a striking way to put it. It's broader than saying simply, when you've wronged your brother. We wrong our brothers and sisters constantly in our hearts, as well as in our words and deeds. But oftentimes, the wrongs we do against them in our hearts do not turn them against us. They're they're unknown to them. And so they do not have something against us because of that. It's important to realize, brothers and sisters, that Christians not called upon to confess every secret sin against every person he sins against. As a matter of fact, if you did that, you'd create more sin and occasion your brothers' temptation to sin. You, for example, overhear something that someone says and it, you, it makes you angry with him. But you get over it. You realize I didn't have reason to be angry. And it's resolved. Don't confess a sin that he is not, that is, not, is unknown to him and he's unaffected by. You find yourself envying another brother in the church or in your neighborhood or have you. You pray that God would root that sin out of your heart and he answers your prayer relationship's never affected by that. You keep that between you and the Lord. But, brothers and sisters, there are times when even secret sins, sins of our hearts, that our brother is unaware of, nonetheless, eventually, affect him. You, you may not know exactly why the guy in the cubicle next door assume the thing for a moment, especially for our purposes, that he's a brother in the Lord. You may not know why he's avoiding you. You may not have any awareness of the fact that you said something that he's really angry about. You're completely in the dark, but you know that he's no longer relating to you as he once did. He has a responsibility to confess his secret sin. Why? Because you have been suffering from it. You have something against him. Most particularly, brothers and sisters, we can say then, this is the answer to the question. When do we confess our sin? Whenever you sin against someone to their hurt. Especially when your sin has affected their relationship. Whenever you sin against someone to their hurt, and especially when your sin has affected your relationship. You may have stolen from your boss and he doesn't know it, but it was to his hurt and you have to confess it to him. And brothers and sisters, when you've done something that affects the relationship between you, it's your responsibility always to confess your sins. And that has sweeping implications. Let me open your eyes a bit to what those implications are. Jesus says it very simply. Your brother has something against you. That's when you go. He doesn't. Put any kind of qualification on that. If you've got a legitimate grievance against him, well then, that's off. You're even. No. Often that is the case, isn't it? Your brother has something against you, and it's mutual. You both have something. You've both sinned against each other. And there's the stalemate, right? He's got something against me. He should come to me. You've got something against him. You should go to him. Jesus puts the responsibility squarely on the listener. Listener. Of his word, the "you" applies to those of you who have a brother with a grudge against you. He doesn't put in there a qualification about how old this grievance is, you know, unless it's six months or more that this has happened. He doesn't. Your brother has something against you. How long can a brother carry on a grievance against another brother? Oh, well, it's a rather depressing thought to think about it years lifetimes you realize I was I I did something despicable to a brother or sister 15 years ago and I've never really seen how despicable that was until I came to this point in my Christian life what should you do you should go you should acknowledge your sin. You should seek to be reconciled. What if it's not going to be well received? What if you know it's, it's the best gut feeling you've got, that it will not be well received? It may even create sparks. They, they're not inclined to forgive. You, you think you've got them all figured out. Should you go? Well, let me ask you. Does Jesus ask you to Play the role of God and predict the future and the outcome of, of your going, your obedience. No, he doesn't. You go and you confess your sins. What if you're in doubt about whether the other person is really offended? You know you've sinned. You don't really know if he's offended. But you have doubt, what do you think I'm going to say? What do you think Jesus would say? Uh, it, it's true, isn't it, that from time to time, you and I will have someone come and say, I'm sure this has been your experience, it has been mine. Someone will come and say, I'm really sorry about what I said, such and such. I was, was wrong. I think I got hurt you. And I've said, well, actually, no, I, you didn't. I didn't even think about it. I'm not. Even having, a, I'm having a hard time remembering it. And so you have one of those little conversations, and you go away fine. Now, what is more common? That situation? or the failure to go and be reconciled. I think it's the latter. We should err, brothers and sisters, even in doubt, we should err on the side of humility and of confession of sin. I've been talking to you thus far about what confession is, about when confession is necessary. Let me conclude with a third point. What confession accomplishes? It doesn't accomplish everything. It doesn't confession of sin, no matter how prompt, no matter how specific and sincere, no matter how much motivated out of love to be reconciled. Confession of sin is not magic and it does not have power of the heart of another person. Only God has that confession of sin does not have the ability to completely dissolve all hurt. It doesn't. We all know this from experience. It doesn't have the ability to restore in the one that you've wronged. Trust and and affection immediately when you've confessed your sin. It doesn't have that power. There are certain things that confession of sin does not accomplish. But here's what it does accomplish. Clears your conscience before the Lord. That's Jesus' concern in Matthew 5. We're sitting here. Uh, Oh, As a matter of fact, it so happens in this very setting that That Jesus is envisioning. Offering your gift at the altar. That is worship. That's what you're doing. We're in the same situation Jesus is describing. You're sitting here. And you're seeking to get close to God. Which is what we're supposed to be doing. In worship. In corporate worship. Coming into His presence. Being embraced by Him. You have got something. That tells you. I have a brother or sister in the Lord. Who has something against me. And they're right. I've wronged them. Brothers and sisters, your conscience should be, should be pricking you. It perhaps should be stabbing you. It should perhaps be shutting you down. Even now. And that should be the way we think every Sabbath day. We come to the Lord's house. We should be thinking, do I have anything that is left unreconciled with another brother or sister? Because if I do, I'm not going to have a clear heart and mind to approach God. Because I know what he thinks of that. He's told us in the famous prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Reconciliation with men is important. Even if you're not able, in your attempts to be reconciled, to secure everything that you'd like, everything that you hoped for, you can secure a clear conscience. And that's a precious thing. I hope you know a little bit what I'm talking about. I hope you know about those times. You can remember them when you have overcome the paralysis of pride, and you've gone with words trimmed down to just words of confession of sin. And you have sought, you truly sought to be restored to this person that has something against you that you've wronged. And however it went, you left there with a great sense of relief. Lord, I feel I've been obedient. And I can pray now. I can worship. I can get close to you. It will accomplish that. It will accomplish, if God blesses, that true reconciliation. I will say to you, everything that I'm going to say in this series about being reconciled to a brother, Iodia, Syntyche, coming together, it is all carried out on the tarmac, the pavement of confession of sin. Without confession of sin, all of it just gets bogged down in mud. It all is founded upon the basis of confession of sin. And when you do that, you're taking the greatest step towards true reconciliation. And I want to say something to you in closing that is, that is almost too good to be true. It may sound you a little bit naive, a little bit uh, Pollyanna. I don't think it is. Recon- pardon me, confession of sin to one whom you've attended, can even be the means by which you come closer together than you've ever been. Now, I hope some of you know something about my experience. I think there's some theological reasons, too, and they're rather profound. Bear with me for a moment. One of the biggest questions in theology and the study of Scriptures are the hardest ones to grapple with is this question. Bear with me. It is relevant. Why has God ordained a world full of sin? Why did He ordain that? In our tradition, we don't mince words. He ordained that. He ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Why? Why? How can that be? And the best answer that we can come up with is, there was something about the presence of all that conflict. Conflict. Rebellion against Him and rebellion within His creation. There was something about that that alone would reveal to us His creatures certain of His perfections. Things like mercy and love and justice. God was willing to ordain the world as it is in order that there might be even greater glory brought to Himself. Now what does that do with what I'm saying? Well, in eternity, we as a church are going to be living together. And that's what God has intended from, from the beginning. A family of God, living for all eternity, enjoying the free persons of the Godhead. That's what He's planned from the beginning. Now, why this whole period of time of conflict? Why? I think, by analogy, we can suppose something. We can suppose, as many, I trust all of you, have experienced in some measure, that there is a way for fathers and Mothers with their children. Husbands with their wives. Brothers in sisters in the congregation. There's a way that longs done, truly confessed, meltingly reconciled, can bring about a deeper, more profound relationship. And I believe that that is why God has ordained conflict, both for His own glory and for our good and all eternity. And He can taste that here in this life? Does it always happen? No, of course not. Well, can confession accomplish that? Yes, indeed. And so as we continue to consider this matter of reconciliation, confession of sin being the first step, brothers and sisters, I want you to be thinking to yourself, with whom do I need to pursue this reconciliation unto my own soul's good The good of the church. Iodian Syntyche coming together is for the good of the church. And ultimately for the glory of God. Taste of heaven. Heaven will be the ultimate reconciliation despite all conflict. Let's pray together. gracious God. The pain of broken relationship, especially with those that you've redeemed. We know to have the same Spirit. We know to be partakers without the same Christ. Can be unbearable can surely be from time to time one of our our greatest burdens of conscience. Father, we're thankful for the measure to which you have spared us so much of this. We thank you for the health and strength you gave in the church at Philippi, to this church, to many in our day. Our Lord, we pray you would heal the Eodia and Syntyche, our divisions As they occur within us, whether it's in the space of even a few minutes and spread over days or even longer, we pray that you would give to us success and being reconciled. We pray this for the end of holy worship, worship in spirit and truth with clear consciences. We pray this in order that we might be manifesting the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We pray this ultimately that we might be the peacemakers who become the children of God. Humble us, we pray. We confess that it's easier for us to to tell you of our sins than another human being. And we confess that that is reflection on how we'd rather be humble before you than, than even a brother. Lord, we pray that you will give to us a willingness to say our sin to those we've sinned against. And we ask that You will do this for the glory of Your name. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.